The United Auto Workers said today it's going on strike at 38 more GM and Stellantis locations across 20 states in their labor dispute with the big three automakers. The union says Ford's warehouses will stay open because those talks have made progress. It's Friday, September 22nd, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. on the strike coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Democratic Senator Bob Menendez has been indicted on corruption charges in Manhattan. Federal prosecutors have accused him and his wife of accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes, including gold bars, cash, and a Mercedes. A growing number of restaurants are stocking the overdose antidote to Narcan and training staff on how to administer it. And the sudden death of a rising Afrobeats star has led to an outpouring of grief and anger in Nigeria and brought the treatment of musicians by powerful record labels into sharper focus. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. No words, no United Auto Workers members outside a parts distribution Stellantis plant in Illinois are among the thousands who've just joined roughly 13,000 of their comrades on the picket lines, all demanding higher wages and stronger job protections. UAW President Sean Fain announced a decision to expand the strike to dozens of Stellantis and General Motors plants in 20 states. Both of those companies have rejected all of our job security proposals. Both GM and Stellantis have rejected our profit-sharing proposals, and both companies have rejected our proposals to convert temps. But Fain says so far Ford is being spared because talks with that company have been progressing. New conflict of interest revelations today about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas in a lengthy article ProPublica reports that over the years, Thomas has maintained a close relationship with the Koch Network, one of the nation's largest and most influential political organizations. NPR's Nina Totenberg has more. According to ProPublica, Thomas has at least twice been brought in to speak at private dinners for donors to the Koch Network. That put him in what ProPublica called the extraordinary position of having served as a fundraising draw for a network that has repeatedly brought cases before the Supreme Court. In 2021, one of the Koch entities, Americans for Prosperity, successfully challenged state laws that required nonprofits to disclose the identity of their large donors. And this year, the network is supporting a challenge to a longstanding Supreme Court regulatory precedent. Thomas did not recuse himself from the 2021 case, nor is there any indication he'll recuse this term. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Democratic New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez and his wife Nadine are facing criminal charges for allegedly accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes. The Justice Department accuses a couple of taking cash in exchange for unlawfully helping three New Jersey businessmen as well as the Egyptian government. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he's hoping that an international force could be on the ground in the coming months in Haiti to help local police. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Kenya has agreed to lead an international mission to Haiti, and Blinken says the U.S. is ready to help with logistical and intelligence support, as well as providing medevac capabilities and funding. He announced $100 million for that and another $65 million for the Haitian National Police. With our support, this mission can deploy within months, and we really have no time to lose. While this won't be a formal U.N. peacekeeping mission, countries that have offered to help want the U.N. Security Council to endorse it. The U.S. has drafted a resolution and is hoping for a vote next week. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, New York. It's NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA's Chief Phil Eng has announced some top-level staffing changes today. They include new chief operating and safety officers and new director roles for water, rail, and bus service. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has more on the restructuring. It's no secret that the T has had a few rough years. Along with safety and reliability issues, the system has also been battling staffing shortages. The executive director of the MBTA Advisory Board, Brian Kane, says the restructuring should create greater stability at the T. This is a real positive development. It's probably the biggest structural change internal to the T in about a decade. Kane says the move shows Ang's commitment to fixing the troubled transit system. He's setting the table to be here for a long period of time, and that's heartening. Many of the changes were effective immediately. The T did not say when the new directors of water, rail, and bus will be named. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Some Massachusetts residents and business owners can now apply for federal assistance to cover losses from the flooding last month. Today, Governor Moore Healy announced that affected residents and businesses and nonprofits in Essex, Middlesex, and Suffolk counties are eligible for low-interest loans from the U.S. Small Business Administration. The August 8th storms disrupted travel, sparked a tornado in Mattapuiset, and damaged several buildings in North Andover. Marshmallow Fluff fans, be patient. Organizers of the Somerville Fluff Festival announced today that the annual event is being moved from tomorrow to Sunday because of the expected rain. The festival's Jessica Eschleman says there will be public transportation despite construction along the Green Line extension. The MBTA is providing free shuttles, fully accessible, running every 10 minutes from the East Somerville stop on the Green Line directly to Union Square from 2.30 to 7.30 on Sunday. The festival celebrates the marshmallow spread invented in Somerville in 1917. Another nice day, but say a fond farewell to the glorious weather this week. As clouds move in tonight, showers arrive tomorrow afternoon propelled by a gusty wind. Could have some leftover showers on Sunday, only in the low to mid-60s over the weekend. 67 degrees now at 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The United Auto Workers strike has just gotten a lot bigger, and it could soon be affecting a lot more people. That's because the union just expanded the action to warehouses in a way that will quickly ripple out to dealers. And in another big move, the union is also pitting the automakers against each other. NPR's Camila Dominoski joins us to explain. Camila, I understand that the UAW made a big announcement about all of this today, what they say? Yeah, so they are expanding the strikes against Stellantis, that's the parent company of Chrysler, and General Motors, but not against Ford. And the expansion is specifically to 38 parts distribution centers. What do we know about those facilities and how big of a deal is this? Yeah, so what we're talking about here are not the huge plants where they make vehicles, which is what went on strike last week and remains on strike. These are parts distribution centers, basically warehouses, where the companies ship out parts to dealerships. They're located all over the country because there are dealerships all over the country. This doesn't shut down the whole auto industry, right? Companies can still make cars. These are smaller facilities, but what they do is they feed parts to dealerships 
when they need to repair vehicles, right? So this will affect drivers who need repairs as soon as their local dealerships run through their local stockpiles. Huh. Okay, and what is the UAW strategy with all of this? Yeah, well, one thing is to hit the automakers in their pocketbooks, right? These things, these warehouses that ship out parts, they are a cash cow for companies. Just today, I was listening back to a call that GM did with Credit Suisse a few years ago, and the then CFO of the company, Divya Suradivra, she said this. It is a very important part of our profitability, and it's been consistent. Consistent, that is car sales go up, they go down, but there's always money in selling floor mats, <laughs> unless you can't ship them out of the warehouse, sure. obviously, right? Um, these warehouses are smaller, there's fewer employees, that's helpful, you know, the UAW is paying striking employees $500 each week, so this stretches out the strike fund, and it also affects dealers, and dealers might put pressure on companies. Earlier, I think I heard you say that they are not striking at more Ford locations. Why is that? Yeah, Ford is simply giving the union more of what it wants. Better cost of living guarantees, job protections if plants close, paying workers at different locations equally. There's still not a deal between the union and Ford. Ford says there are, in fact, significant gaps in between them. But the union is really playing Ford off of their rivals. The GM and Stellantis here saying, look, if you give us what we want, we don't put your centers on strike. Okay, so it's clear that the UAW is turning up the heat here and that this is a situation that consumers could soon feel acutely. Where did things go from here? Talks are continuing. Um, the companies are frustrated. GM used the word untenable to describe the demands. Stellantis accused the union of pursuing political agendas. All the companies say they wouldn't be able to compete with non-unionized companies if they met all the union's demands. On the other side of the table, the union says they could add more strikes at any time. Most of the carmakers' plants are still running today, right? This was a big announcement that the UAW announced today. But there's still, you know, the union's keeping some of its powder dry. And I should, you know, I should note, I, I try to avoid using military metaphors really casually. Um, but Sean Fain, who is the president of the UAW, he wore a camo shirt in today's video. So kind of invited that one there. I guess. NPR's Camila Dominoski, thank you much. Thanks, Juana. We turn now to news out of the Justice Department. U.S. Senator Robert Menendez and his wife have been indicted on federal corruption charges. The New Jersey Democrat is accused of accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes from three businessmen in exchange for using his power as a senator to help them. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas is with us now. Hey there. Hello. Tell us more about the charges. Well, the Menendez and his wife face three charges, uh, conspiracy to commit bribery, conspiracy to commit honest services fraud, uh, and conspiracy to commit extortion. Uh, three New Jersey businessmen who were allegedly bribing, them, uh, bribing Menendez in exchange for his help were also charged. One of them is originally from Egypt, and that ties into some of the alleged criminal conduct here. Uh, and that's because, according to the indictment, Menendez allegedly gave sensitive U.S. government information and actually took concrete actions to secretly help the Egyptian government. Uh, that includes giving them non-public information about U.S. military aid to Egypt uh, and info about U.S. embassy staff in Cairo. 
Interesting, uh, particularly given I'll point out that Senator Menendez chairs the Senate Foreign Relations mm -hmm. Committee. Okay, what else is the government alleging that he did in exchange for these bribes? Well, prosecutors also say that Menendez pressured a U.S. Department of Agriculture official to try to protect uh, a lucrative business monopoly that one of the businessmen had set up. Uh, Menendez also allegedly tried to interfere in a state prosecution in New Jersey related to one co-defendant. And prosecutor say Menendez used his position as senator uh, to try to influence a federal criminal prosecution, also in New Jersey, of yet another one of his co-defendants. Okay, so a lot of details as you have read over this. What, what stands out to you, Ryan? Well, there's a lot of detail in this indictment, uh, and that certainly includes uh, the bribes that Menendez and his wife allegedly received. The indictment says that when federal agents searched Menendez's home uh, in June of 2022, they found $480,000 in cash, some of it stuffed into envelopes. Some of those envelopes, prosecutors say, had the fingerprints of one of Menendez's co-defendants on them. Uh, some of the cash was hidden in clothes. There's a photo actually in the indictment of two jackets with Menendez's name monogrammed on them uh, and stacks of $100 bills that were allegedly hidden in those coats. Um, and agents also found bars of gold. There's a picture of them in the indictment, which also says that Menendez's internet search history includes a search for, quote, how much is one kilo of gold worth? Okay. Um, this is not the first time that Senator Menendez has faced federal corruption charges. He fought earlier charges. He won. What is he saying this time? Well, you're right. He was indicted in New Jersey back in 2014 on unrelated bribery charges. Menendez took that case to trial, ended up getting a hung jury, and those charges were ultimately dropped. Uh, so, yes, he fought those charges that time. He's doing it again this time. He put out a statement today in which he accuses prosecutors of misrepresenting what Menendez calls the normal work of a congressional office. He accused prosecutors of uh, attacking his wife. He says these are baseless allegations. The facts are not as prosecutors are presenting them. Um, he said that's the same thing that happened the last time he was prosecuted. And he said, look how that ended. He wasn't convicted. And so he told people to remember that. NPR Justice Correspondent Ryan Lucas, thank you. Thank you. On Sunday morning, if all goes as planned, a capsule will come screaming down from space and land in Utah's Great Salt Lake Desert. Inside will be some unusual cargo, dust and rock from an asteroid. NASA is bringing back about eight ounces of asteroid material. That's about a cupful, which may not sound like much, but this will be the biggest return of extraterrestrial samples since the Apollo astronauts collected moon rocks. As NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports, the mission's Chief scientist has been dreaming of this day, literally. The asteroid is called Bennu. It's a dark rubble pile about the size of the Empire State Building, and it frequently appears in the dreams of Dante Loretta. He's a planetary scientist at the University of Arizona and the leader of NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission. He says he tends to have vivid dreams, and when the spacecraft was orbiting the asteroid about 200 million miles away, he dreamed he was out there too. One of my favorite ones was um, I was in the gift shop on the asteroid, and I was like, how did I get this job? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not supposed to be selling Bennu's memorabilia. Then I was like, if we can build a gift shop, why am I stressing so much about getting all this sample? I can just pick some up right now. Picking up a sample of the asteroid wasn't that easy. Instead of having a smooth surface, as scientists expected, Bennu was studded with boulders. So the team had to get the spacecraft, which is the size of a 15-passenger van, down into a rocky crater. 
In October of 2020, the spacecraft maneuvered past obstacles with nicknames like Mount Doom. OREX has descended below the five-meter mark. The hazard map is go for tag. While mission managers sat in a control room, nervously watching computer screens. And we have OSIRIS-REx tagged the asteroid with a robotic arm. The rocks it collected got sealed inside a sample return capsule that looks like a mini UFO. As the spacecraft flies by Earth Sunday morning, it will jettison the capsule, which will enter the atmosphere going 36 times the speed of sound. Its target zone is in the high mountain desert of the Utah Test and Training Range. Loretta says everything depends on its parachutes working. We've already seen one of those where it didn't happen, right, with the Genesis mission, where the capsule crashed because the parachute failed to deploy. A disaster like that one would be a nightmare for Loretta and the other scientists because a crash could contaminate the asteroid materials. And getting to study a pristine sample was the whole point of this mission. Asteroids are thought to be leftovers from planet formation in the early solar system. Researchers want to study their undisturbed chemical makeup to learn what ingredients could have helped lead to the emergence of life. So, assuming the OSIRIS-REx capsule lands safely, it will get rushed to a clean room and then onto a special lab where it will be opened. Loretta recently dreamed about that moment. In the dream, the just-opened canister was on a table in front of him. And there was a green gem sitting in there amongst the black dirt, and I grabbed it and I popped it in my mouth. <laughs> I was like, why would you do that? <laughs> he says in real life, the capsule will be in a sealed cabinet. There's no way he could grab the asteroid stuff. Plus, he'd never eat it. He says he and his colleagues have worked too hard for almost two decades to get it. Nell Greenfield Boyce, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, we hear about how the small town of Eagle Pass, Texas, is reckoning with the arrival of thousands of migrants who've crossed the U.S.-Mexico border this week. That story and much more still ahead. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com and Cambridge Science Festival, presenting an evening of live comedy, film screenings, performance poetry, art installations, and more. Friday, September 30th, cambridgesciencefestival.org. Stocks fell today. The Dow lost three-tenths of a percent. S&P lost two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq dipped about one-tenth of a percent. For the S&P and Nasdaq, it was their worst week since March. The expanded United Auto Workers strike is affecting a distribution center in Massachusetts. The Stellantis warehouse in Mansfield is among the 38 facilities in 20 states that are joining the job action today. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren visited the picket line just after it went up this afternoon. When the CEOs have gotten 40% raises, it's time for the rank-and-file workers, the ones who really produce the product, to just get a fair contract and a share of those profits. The Parts Distribution Center in Mansfield has 60 employees. The forecast is coming up. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Freedom Trail Foundation. Experience over 250 years of history on Boston's iconic trail with its 16 historic sites and tours. Thefreedomtrail.org. Clouding up overnight tonight should turn cool temperatures in the mid-50s. Clouds to start the day tomorrow. Good chance of rain, especially in the afternoon. Chilly. Temperatures barely in the 60s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The U.S. Soccer Federation recently announced that it's leaving its national headquarters in Chicago. The organization will move its staff and build the first ever training center for all U.S. soccer teams, for all U.S. soccer national teams in Atlanta. The decision to relocate to the southeast comes as no surprise to those watching the sports rise in the region. Orlando Montoya of Georgia Public Broadcasting reports. To give you a sense of how quickly soccer has grown in the Southeast, a decade ago there were no Major League Soccer teams south of Washington, D.C. Now there are five. And the league's vice president for communications, Dan Kordemanch, says their fans are transforming the sport. The cultural influence for the sport of soccer in our country has certainly shifted south. And that's due in large part to the success of Atlanta United, Charlotte FC, Nashville SC, and even further south with Orlando City and Inter-Miami. Four of the league's five largest match attendance records were set in either Atlanta or Charlotte in the past five years. Felipe Cardenas writes about soccer for the athletic. He says the region and the sport are both attracting similar types of people. Demographically, this region is changing dramatically, and it's it's become an international region, and and it's the new America, meaning a younger generation, a more diverse generation, uh, a more open-minded generation. Soccer in the Southeast also got a huge boost this year when one of those young internationals decided to play for Inter-Miami. The arrival of one of the greatest soccer players of all time has excited superfans like Matt Swift of Mint City Collective, a Charlotte FC supporters group, the kind that waves large flags, belts out chants, and sets off smoke bombs during matches. Messi's here in the South. He's in the Eastern Conference. I just think with, with him specifically coming to the league, it's going to open up a lot more doors, a lot more eyeballs on this league, and it's going to change a lot of things. And again, I, it's no coincidence that they've moved the headquarters to Atlanta. Like any other business decision, U.S. soccer's move to Atlanta also could have to do with weather, airport connections, and, of course, money. The owner of Atlanta United and the NFL's Atlanta Falcons, Arthur Blank, pledged $50 million toward the move. For NPR News, I'm Orlando Montoya in Atlanta. 
Back in 1985, Argentina became the only democratic government in modern history to convict the leaders of a former dictatorship in its own civilian court. Today, at Film Forum in New York, long-suppressed video recordings of that trial make their American premiere. NPR's Bob Mandela was recently in Argentina and brought back the story behind the documentary El Juicio, the trial. A word of warning, his story contains details of violence, brutality, and sexual assault. Standing beneath the birch and flowering jacaranda trees at what used to be ESMA, E-S-M-A, the acronym in Spanish for the Navy School of Mechanics, it's not easy to picture the horrors that took place here. In the 1970s and 80s, ESMA was a secret detention center for a right-wing military regime brutally engaged in eliminating dissent. The gruesome nature of its time as one of many torture and execution sites was exposed in trial testimony two years after the end of the dictatorship. The documentary El Juicio is composed entirely of video shot during those courtroom proceedings. 530 hours were filmed by Argentina's public television. Because the military was still feared, a copy of the recordings was secretly stashed half a world away in Oslo, where the tape sat in Norwegian government vaults for more than two decades. They have never been publicly broadcast, not even during the trial. News programs could show three minutes of courtroom images back then, but without sound, says Veronica Torres, executive director of the Human Rights Consortium now entrusted with the videos. Her organization, Memoria Abierta, Open Memory, is charged with making the trial videos available to the public. As part of that mission, the group co-produced the documentary El Juicio. I'm speaking with Director Torres in Memoria Abierta's offices at the former ESMA. What is now a museum of memory, she says, was then a site of state terrorism where civilians were held without charges, tortured, then flown far out over the Atlantic to be thrown alive from what were known as death flights. It's disconcerting to realize how close victims at ESMA were to the society they'd been snatched from. Just across a busy highway are shops and apartment buildings. Still, the film has witnesses detailing all sorts of atrocities. Teenagers swept up on what was called the Night of the Pencils for serving on high school student councils. Claudia Maria Falcone. 16-year-olds facing unspeakable violence, torture, rape, murder, remembers a lone survivor. Because of a face-obscuring over-the-shoulder camera angle required by the court, you know he's crying only from the shaking of his torso. Another witness speaks of expectant mothers imprisoned until they gave birth, then executed, their babies handed off to military families. Because their captivity was never acknowledged by the regime, the victims were known as the disappeared. And as the editor of the English-language Buenos Aires Herald told the judges... As soon as somebody disappeared, everybody said, he, she must be a terrorist. I had continual meetings with the Minister of Interior. He always complained that publications in the newspaper were counterproductive. So instead of stopping the killing, they tried to stop people reporting the killing. While these videos haven't been seen by the Argentine public, the film's damning testimony is a matter of public record. 
Newspapers offered transcripts of the trial in 1985, not as visceral, perhaps, as hearing the voices of victims, but Torres, translated here by her colleague Alejandra Pavisic, remembers the effect that coverage had on her family when she was a child. I remember that I used to read the newspaper together with my grandmother at that moment, and that her grandmother was just now realizing what what happened during dictatorship thanks to what she read in the newspapers about the trial. Tens of thousands of people disappeared. How is it possible that people didn't know what was happening? The reason this is tough to answer has to do with what Torres hopes releasing the tapes will rectify. People in big cities, she says, saw the military in action, knew about the disappearances and detention camps. But in rural areas and the south, where her grandmother lived, the repression was more hidden. And 40 years later, its savagery is becoming a distant memory, especially for a generation that wasn't alive at the time. A generation that can, in the trial tapes, hear the prosecutor conclude his summation with nunca más, never again, and watch the crowd's explosive reaction wipe the smiles from the faces of the former dictator and his generals. Memoria Abierta hopes to keep that memory potent through broad access to the trial videos. I'm Bob Mandela. The campus, now known as Ex-ESMA, was just named a World Heritage Site by the United Nations on Tuesday. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Friday afternoon. Coming up in about 15 minutes, a growing number of restaurants are stocking the overdose antidote Narcan and training staff on how to administer it. That and much more still ahead. White Sox and Red meet up at Fenway tonight for the start of a three-game series. Chris Sale throws the first pitch at 7:10. It'll be Tuki Toussaint for Chicago. And the forecast look for a soggy weekend coming up. Gray skies tonight to look for a strong wind. A lot of rain tomorrow, mainly in the afternoon. Sunday clouds should stick around with rain possibly returning. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Lyric Opera, presenting a startling new Madama Butterfly in an all-new production. Visit blo.org for more information. And Babson College. Explore Babson College graduate programs at their virtual open house on October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash gradopenhouse. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In a world where often only those who can afford a subscription are the ones with access to the most credible, high-quality news sources, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. But we can't take our future for granted. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris talked about gun safety at the White House today, announcing the creation of the first-ever White House Office of Gun Violence Prevention, which, among other things, will add support for survivors of gun violence, like Representative Lucy McBath of 
uh, Georgia, who lost her son to gun violence in 2012. President Biden knows the deep pain of losing a loved one. And today, he is taking decisive action by declaring loudly and clearly, we do not have to live this way. The new office will also help coordinate more support for families and communities affected by gun violence, including providing mental health care and financial assistance, much like FEMA responds to natural disasters. New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez has been indicted again, this time by federal prosecutors in New York. From member station WNYC, Nancy Solomon has more. The indictment alleges Menendez and his wife accepted bribes to help a halal meat company in New Jersey control exports to Egypt. The indictment says a raid of the Menendez home found $480,000 in cash with fingerprints identifying a New Jersey real estate developer. They also found wads of cash stuffed into a jacket with the senator's name on it. Menendez leads the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He faced a trial on corruption charges related to a Florida eye doctor in 2018 that ended with a hung jury. Menendez denied those charges. He's up for re-election in 2024. For NPR News, I'm Nancy Solomon in Maplewood, New Jersey. Stocks finished lower across the board on Wall Street to end the week. The Dow dropped 106 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey is ordering a review of maternal health centers in the state. This follows UMass Memorial Health's decision to close its birthing center in Lemonster. That happens tomorrow. Some area residents want the facility to stay open for pregnant women who have limited resources to get care elsewhere. State Senator John Cronin of Lemonster fought the closure. And if you put Fitchburg and Lemonster and Lunenburg together, When you're talking about a service area the size of Lowell, this is a community that's geographically isolated, that really, that that desperately needs essential health care services accessible and in our community. UMass Memorial Health says it cannot afford to keep the center open. It says it will provide 24-7 transportation for patients to UMass Medical Center in Worcester. Democrats will gather in Lowell tomorrow for the state party convention. More than 2,500 delegates are expected to adopt the party's agenda. Some reform-minded delegates are pushing resolutions mandating a hybrid participation option for future Democratic state conventions and endorsing regular independent audits of the state legislature. Sumner Tunnel in Boston is set to close again this weekend for additional repairs and upgrades. The Sumner, connecting East Boston to downtown, will shut down at 11 tonight and reopen by 5 Monday morning. It is the second of eight planned weekend closures before the end of the year. The forecast and sports are coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for spring. bgsp.edu. It's the last home series of the regular season for the Red Sox tonight as they play the Chicago White Sox at Fenway. Game time 7-10. In the forecast, squeezing out the remainder of the sunshine this afternoon as clouds move in for tonight and spend the weekend. Overnight should get down to about 55. Tomorrow only making it to 62 degrees or thereabouts with rainfall mostly tomorrow afternoon. Some strong winds around. Sunday, some of the rain should back off, but we may still have showers, still windy, highs in the mid-60s. 67 degrees in Boston at 435.
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Mone, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Nigeria, the sudden death of 27-year-old Afro-pop artist Mobad has led to an outpouring of grief. The exact cause of his death is unknown, but the murky circumstances around it have fueled anger and a demand for answers. They've also led to a focus on the abuse and exploitation of young artists within Nigeria's booming Afrobeats music scene. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports from Lagos. These are the buoyant opening lines of Feel Good by Mobad, an uplifting hit song with lyrics in Yoruba, Pidgin and English. But now it's become the bittersweet soundtrack to his remembrance. Rallies and candlelit vigils in several Nigerian cities have been attended by thousands of people singing renditions of his songs that are charged with pain. Mobad, originally known as Iliriolua Aloba, was a rising star in the music industry. He grew up in Ikorodu, one of the more troubled and lower-income parts of Lagos. He was beloved by many young people who identified with his journey from rough beginnings to stardom. A year ago, he left his music label Malian Records, one of the most prominent music labels in Nigeria, to further his career. But instead, he said he was made to suffer for the decision to leave. In this footage from a video shared late last year, he's in hospital and alleges that he was assaulted by Naira Mali, the head of his former label and one of the most popular artists from the continent. He said Mali assaulted him alongside police agents working on his behalf. But it wasn't the only incident. Footage and alleged evidence posted by him and others over the last year have appeared to show several instances of abuse. In this footage, posted almost a year ago, he said he was currently being physically attacked by Mali and the label, and that if he died, they should be held responsible. The hashtag justice for Mobad has been trending on X, formerly known as Twitter, since his death. The governor of Lagos has called for calm. One person has been arrested and Mobad's body has been exhumed by police and taken for an autopsy. Naira Mali and his associates have strongly denied any involvement, but many in Nigeria have judged him responsible, either for what happened to Mobad or for his treatment when he was alive. And other artists have come out and said they also experienced abuse from Malian records and others in the music industry. It just didn't feel right. It just didn't feel right. Tunde Olawawa works at Splash FM, a radio station in Ibadan, southwest Nigeria. It's one of a number of stations that no longer play Mali's songs. Because we're also in the industry, we know people. We talk to people, I mean, record label owners, artists. We were hearing things 
Mali's political connections with powerful government and police officials have led many to fear any alleged crime will be overlooked in a country where powerful figures regularly act with impunity. And it sparked calls for the investigations to be thorough and fair. At a march and concert in Lagos, in memory of Mobad, hundreds of fans clutch candles, lighting them in small clusters on the ground. And it's poignant because Mobad was also known as Imole, meaning light in Yoruba. At the rally, some of his fans say they fear being identified amid such a sensitive and high-profile case, but they still approach me to share just how much they feel about him. So we are here for my brother, Mobad. We don't know what happened to his death, so we are just here to show love to him. You understand? So we are just here for your love. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Lagos. In recent days, more than 4,000 migrants have crossed from Mexico into the small southwest Texas border city of Eagle Pass. It is part of a larger recent surge in crossings all along the southern border. The increase in migrants, many from Venezuela, has strained local, state, and federal resources there. The mayor of Eagle Pass has declared a state of disaster and is asking for additional help. Joining us now from Eagle Pass is Texas Public Radio reporter Gage Davila. And Gage, this is a small town. Less than 30,000 people live there. What have you been seeing on the ground as you've been traveling there? Well, right now, one of the two international bridges is closed, which has caused a lot of traffic on the lone operating bridge. Under one of those bridges, the one still currently allowing vehicle traffic, is where the migrants are being processed. At one point, there were hundreds of people there, but it's fluctuating. There's lots of migrants, but the various authorities handling the influx are doing as best as they can. The city only has one shelter, and that shelter is over capacity. So that's put a big strain on first responders. So now migrants are now being sent to Laredo and San Antonio. The Eagle Pass Mayor, Rolando Salinas Jr., tells me he expects several thousand more migrants to cross through the city in the coming days. This is really not normal, nothing that we've seen ever, really, to have so many people crossing in without consequence and congregating at the International Bridge. And Governor Abbott on social media has lashed out at the federal government for not doing more to stop illegal crossings. And he said he is deploying additional National Guard forces to the border to, quote, repel illegal crossings and install more razor wire. Mm. Eagle Pass is the epicenter of the governor's efforts to deter illegal crossings. Folks may remember he deployed a floating barrier in the Rio Grande there. Why are so many migrants attempting to cross at Eagle Pass rather than elsewhere along the border? Well, logistically, it's because migrants are hopping trains in Mexico that are heading towards Eagle Pass. Those trains have since been shut down, but the migrants then walk the rest of the way through routes that have been made by previous migrants. Uh, Eagle Pass's mayor says it's because word has gone around among migrants that Eagle Pass is safer to cross through. And in terms of response, CBP says it's much better prepared than they were two years ago in Del Rio, Texas, when there was a much larger surge. The agency says it has more infrastructure in place and is better prepared to deal with big influxes. Uh, For example, they moved almost all of the migrants out from under the bridge in Eagle Pass within 18 hours. Gage, I just want to step back for a second here and ask you, how does the situation there in Eagle Pass compare with 
what we're seeing on the rest of the southern border. Well, crossings are climbing across the border. Uh, just in the first half of September, U.S. immigration authorities encountered more than 142,000 migrants at the southern border. That data is from the U.S. Customs and Border Protection that was shared by the president of Mexico at a press conference yesterday. Now, initially, the number of migrants that arriving at the U.S. border had dropped in May and June after the U.S. rolled out sharp new limits on asylum but the numbers have been climbing steadily ever since. So now we're on pace to match some of the record highs we saw last year. And one place where that is apparent is in El Paso, which has seen more crossings in the last few right. days and is poised to be another hyperactive area. That's Texas Public Radio's Gage Davila in Eagle Pass. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Local health departments have been trying to make Narcan, the naloxone nasal spray that reverses opioid overdoses, more accessible to the public. In some jurisdictions, officials are bringing the antidote to restaurants. NPR member station WAMU's Sarah Wykem reports from Alexandria, Virginia. I'm at Virtue Feed and Grain, a restaurant by Alexandria's Old Town Waterfront. The staff just got Narcan trained as part of a voluntary program by the local health department. The restaurant's manager, Marie Ackerman, is impressed by how simple Narcan is. She thought it would be something more daunting, like a needle. But it's just a nasal spray with no negative side effects. And in Alexandria, it's free. I think anybody can do it. I think even a child can do it. Ackerman says she's getting trained to save lives. Her husband is a priest. He's performed funerals for overdose victims. Some of them were very young. And years ago, a patron suffered an overdose at a restaurant she was working at. And that was very concerning and very scary. Narcan has become more accessible this year. It's starting to be available over the counter. But Amanda Coletti, a Narcan trainer with the Alexandria Health Department, says some restaurant owners are still hesitant. We asked them if they know what Narcan is. And typically they say no, and then when I explain it is when they're kind of hesitant because then they realize, oh, this is a drug for opioids, and that's where the whole stigma plays into it. Test your own drug if needed. It's clear that the staff at Virtue Feed and Grain aren't used to talking about this issue. It feels a bit like a sex ed conversation. One of the employees asks the trainers how to get Narcan. He then asks about fentanyl test strips, which are used to test drugs for the presence of fentanyl. Some of his co-workers start laughing. Kaledi's co-trainer, Safwan Islam, jumps to his defense. No, these are great questions, and guys, do not laugh at him. This is the whole issue we're trying to break down is we want people to be encouraged to reduce harm, right? For the workers, it's a lighthearted moment, but it reflects an attitude that Kaledi and Islam want to challenge. It is good to laugh, and I know they're friends, but also that's part of the whole stigma is, you know, we don't want people to have to just laugh at it. We want them to also take it seriously and know, you know, the gentleman had asked a really good question and I'm glad we were able to answer it for him. Coletti says overcoming that stigma is key to fighting the opioid crisis. The Alexandria Health Department is aiming to get a quarter of the city's restaurants, bars and cafes trained by the end of this year. 
Islam says 50 percent will probably be the next benchmark. Even if it saves one life, even if it saves 100 lives, it's doing its job. In Delaware, restaurants began Narcan training last year under a program by the state health department. Carrie Leishman, the president and CEO of the Delaware Restaurants Association, says restaurants make sense as a training ground. They're a place of gathering. Restaurants are natural community leaders and they want to do for their community. It's part of the DNA of who restaurants are. But Leishman says restaurant managers can do more than stock up a Narcan. They can connect staff to care. At the root of the opioid crisis is a mental health crisis, and she says restaurants need human resources. Narcan is just part of it. It's sort of a last resort. Mariah Francis is with the National Harm Reduction Coalition. Francis is thrilled to see restaurants embracing these programs, which they call humanizing. We are concerned not with condoning drug use or condemning drug use, but providing a safety mechanism that saves someone's life. In 2022, the U.S. hit a new grim record. 109,680 people died of a drug-related overdose. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Y. Kim. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and the Koch brothers. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Johnson & Wales University. Not just a number. A designer, an engineer, an accountant, a JWU Wildcat. Discover more at jwu.edu. It'll be Chris Sale against the White Sox Tuki Tucson tonight at Fenway Park for the start of their three-game series. Red Sox will honor Tanner Houck before the game tonight. Houck is the Sox nominee for the 2023 Roberto Clemente Award, recognizing the player who best represents the game of baseball through extraordinary character and through community involvement. In the forecast, cloudy overnight tonight. Should be cool as well. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Then for tomorrow, clouds start up the day. Good chance of rain, especially tomorrow afternoon. On the chilly side, barely in the 60s. Some of the rain could last into Sunday. Temperatures in the 60s once again. WBUR supporters include The Huntington, presenting Fat Ham. The 2022 Pulitzer Prize winner reinvents Hamlet with a queer black twist. Join Juicy, the saucy protagonist, in a sharp, deliciously funny take on the Shakespeare classic. Fat Ham, playing now through October 29th at the Huntington Calderwood. HuntingtonTheater.org. And Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Josh Gombelman put the tough questions to Hillary Rodham Clinton and got answers. How often do you hang out with Pete Davidson? (laughs) You know, I I am a big fan of Pete. On Peter Sagal, this week we'll talk to filmmaker John Wilson, creator of How To with John Wilson, and find out how much he hangs out with Pete Davidson. Join us for a maddeningly persistent news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The weekend is almost here. And if you are looking to spend some of it curled up on the couch with a great movie, well, you're in luck, especially if you're a fan of 90s thrillers. Pop Culture Happy Hour host Stephen Thompson and Linda Holmes have picked three of their favorites from what they say is the genre's heyday, complete with frantic car chases, wild twists, and plenty of courtroom drama. So this whole entire genre to me is so uh, rich, 
that I felt like every one of these picks to pick three had to stand for more than just itself. So these are all here to represent a larger idea within the realm of 90s thrillers. The first one that I picked is The Pelican Brief from 1993. It is directed by Alan J. Pakula, and it is also an adaptation of a John Grisham book. Mm -hmm. And so this stands in for a few things. A, there were a bunch of John Grisham adaptations, which make up a lot of the 90s, what I think of as the trench coat thriller, the kind of, there's always like FBI guys and other mysterious guys walking around in trench coats, but also because Denzel Washington is in many ways the king of the 90s slash aughts tense thriller. Mm -hmm. You know, he appeared in this, he appeared in uh, The Bone Collector, he appeared in, uh, if you count Devil in a Blue Dress, which is more of a mystery maybe than Mm -hmm. a thriller, but it still counts. He is kind of my ideal thriller dude of this era. So Mm -hmm. I picked The Pelican Brief for that reason. And also Julia Roberts is one of the sort of not maybe not at quite the level that he is, but also somebody who showed up in a bunch of thrillers, especially the unforgettable Sleeping with the Enemy, which is both a very tense and exciting movie and also an extraordinarily silly movie. So The Pelican Brief is the story, if you're not familiar with it, of a young law student played by Julia Roberts, who accidentally figures out via speculation who killed two Supreme Court justices. And, you know, it becomes clear that her life is in terrible danger because the people who did it realize that she's on to them. So there's a lot of kind of running around. And then she connects with this journalist played by Denzel Washington. And then they kind of team up to go out and both uncover the conspiracy and get the guys that were responsible, but also to save her life and save his life. There is all kinds of great stuff in this movie in terms of skulking around at different institutions, pretending to be somebody you're not in order to get information from a bank or a hospital. There are just all these great scenes of just trying to dig up information. It's very exciting in that way. So I love the Pelican Brief. Also, Pakula, of course, is a distinguished director of 70s paranoid conspiracy Mm -hmm. thrillers. So he comes with this rich resume of things like All the President's Men and stuff like that. So you know that you're getting kind of one of the greats in the director. So this, the Pelican Brief from 1993, is my first pick for Mm -hmm. 90s thriller. An outstanding choice. Give us your next one. All right. So my next choice is The Fugitive. This is also from 1993, directed by Andrew Davis. This is here to represent the kind of prestige thriller Mm -hmm. because there are thrillers in this category that wound up being like, more kind of recognized as terrific movies than some of the other ones. So The Fugitive was actually nominated for Best Picture. Tommy Lee Jones won for Best Supporting Actor. This is the movie in which Harrison Ford, and this is based on an old TV series, but Harrison Ford plays this man who is wrongfully convicted of the murder of his wife, R.I.P. Seal Award. And he knows that the person who actually killed his wife is this one-armed man. So he manages to escape in a very wonderful sequence involving a bus and train, goes on the run, trying to find the one-armed man. And Tommy Lee Jones plays the uh, U.S. Marshal who is sent to collect him. This is where you get Tommy Lee Jones giving the speech about, I want you to outhouse, penthouse, doghouse, whatever it is. Love that speech. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, 
residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. Tommy Lee Jones actually went on to play this character again in U.S. Marshals because it was such a like fun and interesting performance. But I love this movie because it is a this really tense, terrific story that leads to this very ridiculous ending where, you know, Harrison Ford is walking into this fancy banquet and confronting somebody. <laughs> I love this movie. If you've never sat down in front of The Fugitive, it is a absolute delight. It is, again, kind of weird and of its time, but it has great performances. Love it. Harrison Ford didn't make enough thrillers like this for me. Mm -hmm. So The Fugitive, prestige thriller, that is my second pick. Yeah, and this movie is a perfect example of the kind of thing that can get swallowed up by references to it. Yes. Where you see so many echoes of this movie in other pop culture, so many parodies of it. Go back and rewatch it. It still holds up so, so, so well on its own. Great pick. Give me the last one. All right. So if you're going to indulge in 90s thrillers, you have to leave some room for the really silly ones, the the really sort of, I'm sorry, what happened kind of thriller. <laughs> uh, as I mentioned earlier, Sleeping with the Enemy has some elements of that, but the one I picked to represent this idea is Double Jeopardy. <laughs> Double Jeopardy is a 1999 thriller starring Ashley Judd as a woman who is, again, wrongfully convicted of mm -hmm. killing her husband while she's in prison she finds out that her husband is actually still alive and that she was framed this is all sort of the setup so i don't feel it's spoiling anything really also it's a 1999 movie but anyway <laughs> so while she's in prison her friend played by the great character actress roma mafia tells her <laughs> it's a great legal theory now that you've been convicted of killing your husband if you ever get out and you find your husband, you can actually kill him in the middle of the street and they can't do anything to you because of double jeopardy. Airtight. This is not a sound <laughs> legal theory. I just want to say, I am not your lawyer. Do not rely on that advice. So she eventually goes kind of looking for her husband. And again, the hilarious thing is her parole officer, who is trying to track her down since she's now broken her parole, is played by Tommy Lee Jones, basically playing the same person that he played in The Fugitive. <laughs> this is a movie that not only has an absolutely ridiculous central premise, but it also has a bunch of really weird and goofy sequences in it. And one of the sequences that I love the best, uh, there's a chase. I'm just going to say there's a chase that involves somebody getting trapped in a coffin, as you do. And shooting your way out <laughs> because of course that's the sound thing to do when you're inside a small enclosed space what you want to do is fire a gun right next to your head yes it's absolutely great so double jeopardy very goofy but lots of fun and kind of in the great tradition of very goofy 90s thrillers that was pop culture happy hours linda holmes and stephen thompson You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Kauffman Foundation, 
providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Discover and rediscover our surroundings with WBUR's new Field Guide to Boston. Whether you've been here forever or you're just finding your way around, the Field Guide connects you to greater Boston's neighborhoods, people, and history. Find your way at wbur.org slash fieldguide. Milky skies, light winds. This could be it for the dry weather for a while. Tonight should turn cloudy and cool. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Clouds to start up the day tomorrow. A good chance of rain, especially tomorrow afternoon. Chilly, barely in the 60s. Some of the rain could last until Sunday. Cloudy, windy, a little milder. Highs in the mid-60s. It's 459. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. New reports of Justice Clarence Thomas's personal relationship with conservative billionaires, in this case, the Koch brothers. The ProPublica investigation is likely to raise questions again about the justice's ethics. Our story is coming up on this Friday, September 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, President Biden is unveiling a new White House office dedicated to the prevention of gun violence. In Colombia, criminal groups have taken over some towns and are using death threats to force politicians to do their bidding. In some cases, we see that these armed groups decide who they want to win. It's totally a big uh, problem for Colombian democracy. We'll hear from a mayor who was forced to flee his town last year. Also, the 13-year-old boy journalist who's covering the impeachment trial of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton for his own newspaper. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in New York, I'm Jack Spear. The standoff between United Auto Workers and Detroit's big three car makers is expanding. The UAW, after failing to make headway in contract talks, says it is striking more GM and Stellantis facilities. Union says it is making progress in negotiations with Ford. It is not starting more strikes at Ford facilities. NPR's Camille Dominoski has more. The union and Ford still don't have a deal, but they've moved closer on some issues important to the union, especially ones tied to equal pay for workers and job security if plants close. Meanwhile, the union says the other two strike targets aren't budging. So the union is calling a new strike at 38 parts distribution facilities around the country. Only GM and Stellantis warehouses. Fords will stay open. Here's union president Sean Fain. We will shut down parts distribution until those two companies come to their senses and come to the table with a serious offer. This will affect car owners who need parts for repairs. Talks between the union and the three companies are ongoing. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. President Joe Biden standing alongside Vice President Kamala Harris today unveiled a new White House Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Biden speaking at the White House said formation of the new office comes despite the powerful gun lobby. For the first time in three decades, we came together to overcome the relentless opposition from the gun lobby, gun manufacturers, and so many politicians 
opposing common-sense gun legislation. Biden says the office to be led by Harris will coordinate support for survivors of gun violence and expand partnerships across cities and states. Harris says the mounting numbers of gun deaths in the U.S. need to stop. These are not simply statistics. These are our children, our brothers and sisters, our mothers and fathers. Studies show in 2020 and 2021, firearms contributed to the deaths of more children ages 1 through 17 than any other type of injury or illness. Ukraine's president says his country and the U.S. will help to jointly manufacture weapons in a move that will help Ukrainians produce more air defense systems. NPR's Joanna Kisses has more from Kyiv. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who wrapped up a visit to the U.S. today, brought up the agreement in his daily video address to Ukrainians. He said the deal shows a new level of unity between the U.S. and Ukraine. Co-production in the defense industry with the United States is a historic moment, Zelensky said. There will be a new industrial base, new jobs for both of our nations. Russia's war on Ukraine has gone on for 19 months. Ukraine badly needs weapons and ammunition to defend itself from ongoing Russian attacks, especially as winter approaches. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. Stocks ended the trading week on a down note. The Dow was down 106 points. The Nasdaq closed down 12 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The United Auto Workers strike against the three major car companies spread to Massachusetts today. Employees of the Stellantis warehouse in Mansfield hit the picket lines. The facility is among 38 locations in 20 states that are being shut down by the union. The parts distribution center in Mansfield has 60 employees. MBTA General Manager Philip Eng is restructuring the T. He has created four new agency divisions, operations, safety, capital, and administration. Stacy Thompson is executive director of the Livable Streets Alliance. She says the changes show the need to break down the agency into silos. It wasn't ever really about one person. It was about a lack of leadership, a lack of communication. And so this move is a direct response to those findings. And I think this is all in all a good sign. This is the first major reorganization of the agency in about a decade. The move comes as the T faces growing scrutiny from federal regulators following a series of near misses between MBTA trains and employees. A labor shortage is affecting ferry service this afternoon between Cape Cod and the islands. The Steamship Authority says it's canceling some trips and consolidating others because it does not have enough crew members. The lack of workers was a sporadic problem for the Cape and Islands ferries throughout the summer. State police are searching for a driver accused of dragging a trooper with a car in Holyoke. The trooper approached the vehicle at a rest stop on Route 91 just after 3 this afternoon. He escaped serious injury by freeing himself from the vehicle as the driver took off. The car was abandoned a short distance away, and the driver ran off into the woods. With rain in the forecast tomorrow, the Somerville Fluff Festival is being moved to Sunday. The annual event celebrates the marshmallow spread that was invented in Somerville in 1917. And the forecast, chilly tonight, about 55 degrees. Tomorrow, rain indeed, especially in the afternoon. Windy and raw, about 62 degrees. Showers may come back on Sunday, still windy, reaching the mid-60s at the highest. Still damp and gray on Monday. 65 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And we begin this hour with another eyebrow-raising investigation into ethics and the Supreme Court. Reporting by ProPublica and others over the last year has raised questions about the conduct of Supreme Court justices accepting and not disclosing luxury travel from rich friends, for example. Now ProPublica is out with a story that Justice Clarence Thomas traveled on a private jet and spoke at major fundraisers hosted by the Koch brothers at least twice. Well, the New Yorker's Jane Mayer has reported extensively on the Koch brothers as political operators. She joins us now to talk through their role in conservative political circles. Jane Mayer, hey there. Hi, how are you? I am all right. Thank you. I am curious what your first thought was when you saw this ProPublica story headlined, Clarence Thomas secretly participated in Koch network donor events. Uh, well, I thought it was a terrific story. ProPublica's doing really invaluable work these days about the Supreme Court and the conflicts of interests and ethical problems up there. But at the same time, I kind of thought, I'm not surprised because in my book, Dark Money, I was just checking. There it is that the uh, that it was both Justices Scalia and Justice Thomas attended these um, very exclusive and secretive fundraisers that the Koch brothers um, have held uh, twice a year for, for many years. And we don't know how many they attended, but we know they attended several of them. Interesting. So this, quote, secret participation was something of an open secret, it sounds like. I yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the thing is, Basically, these stories are so hard for everybody to nail down that what you've got is sort of like little dots and the reporters are more and more connecting the dots. And what you're getting is sort of a pontilist picture that is not pretty, um, but it's all very hard to, to put that picture together because there's, it's so hard to follow the money as it affects the Supreme Court. So I want to drill down on the Koch brothers side of this story. Just remind us what we need to know about them, who they are, where their money comes from. They were for many years. Um, they, we call them the Koch brothers. It was Charles Koch and his brother, David Koch. David has since died. Charles is still very much alive. And for years, they were the sort of the foremost funders of far-right libertarian politics in America. They really moved the Republican Party far, far to the right. And they did so by spending millions and millions, many more millions than you could possibly be able to, to trace from their family fortune, which was made mostly in oil, in refining oil. They inherited the company from their dad and they built it up into the second largest private company in the United States. And when you say they, their politics are far right libertarian, give me an example of what that means. What causes do they invest in? Well, basically they put out a kind of a, an agenda many years ago that explained what they were aiming for. And what they wanted to do was to vastly weaken the size and the scope of the federal government. They wanted to get rid of the CIA, the FBI, the FDA, the IRS, um, the EPA, the, you name it, there were very few federal agencies they really believed in. They also have opposed public schools. What they wanted to do was um, kind of shrink the government down to the size that you can uh, drown in your bathtub is Grover Norquist, one of their sort of people that they've worked with, has put it. Huh. So now that we have established their politics, 
does having Justice Clarence Thomas headline their fundraisers call into question his judicial independence? Well, it certainly seems so. From reading the ProPublica story, you've got any number of of experts in um, judicial ethics who are appalled by it. I think at least one of them said they thought that that Clarence Thomas needs to recuse himself from any of the cases the Cokes have been involved in. And and that really is the reason why this is a problem, is that a company as big as Coke Industries, run by people who have as many political and financial interests as the Cokes do, they have just countless conflicts of interest with the Supreme Court. They have huge interests in front of the Supreme Court. There's a case coming up this year that is something that they've dreamed of bringing and have pushed for for years. And many other cases have been cases that they have um, a great interest in the outcome of. So it, it, it to have one of the justices seem so closely um, socializing with them and rubbing shoulders with them is it, it creates a kind of an unseemly uh, image. What questions would you put to Justice Thomas if he were on the line with us now? Um, I guess I would ask him why did he go? <laughs> you know, I mean, the, what 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 drew him to this this crowd of billionaires who have such a strong ideological interest in issues in front of the court? And why does he feel that it doesn't create a conflict of interest or the perception of that? Jane Mayer of The New Yorker and author of the book, Dark Money. Thank you. Thanks, Mary Louise. In Colombia, security has improved thanks to a 2016 peace treaty that disarmed the country's largest guerrilla group. However, smaller rebel factions and drug traffickers continue to throw their weight around. Reporter John Otis caught up with one Colombian mayor who faces so many threats from criminal groups that he's been forced to run his town largely from exile. Residents here in the southern town of Cartagena del Chaira are attending what should be a fairly common event, a neighborhood meeting with the mayor. But this is actually something quite rare. Mayor Edilberto Molina has received so many death threats that he was forced to flee the town last year. Now, he's back in Cartagena del Chaira for the first time in four months. He arrived on an army helicopter because it was too dangerous to travel overland. He walks around town surrounded by bodyguards, like when he visits this soup kitchen. There's about a hundred elderly people here sitting down for lunch. And because the mayor's here inside shaking hands, Uh, There's five police officers standing outside, keeping guard, making sure he's safe. The mayor's problem is that he ran afoul of leftist guerrillas who operate in this area, which is home to vast cattle ranches and fields of coca, the raw material for cocaine. Besides drug trafficking, the rebels reap huge sums by extorting the town's business owners and its politicians. For example, they force candidates to pay for the right to campaign in areas under their control. Once in office, mayors and town council members must do the rebels' bidding, or they can be kidnapped or killed. Molina says, when I ran for mayor in 2019, the guerrillas demanded that I pay them one billion pesos. At the time, that was about $285,000, and Molina refused. 
todos los alcaldes que han estado aquí. All of the previous mayors here have had to pay off the gorillas, Molina says. I didn't want to, so I became a thorn in their side. Molina, who is 42, lists his reasons for resisting. Mi padre fue asesinado allá cuando yo tenía seis años. For one thing, he says, the gorillas killed his father when Molina was only six years old. What's more, Molina grew up in Cartagena del Chaira, a farm town of about 35,000 people, and he doesn't want to see it taken over by criminals. But his refusal to give in to guerrilla blackmail has led to numerous death threats. Last year, the rebels threatened to blow up the town hall. So Molina packed up his wife and two young children and moved to the provincial capital of Florencia, 75 miles away. He's not the only Colombian mayor to be forced out by criminal gangs. We have seen 12 cases of mayors that have been expelled from their municipalities. That's Mauricio Vela of the Bogota-based Electoral Observation Mission. Next month, voters will go to the polls to elect new mayors and governors. But even while the Colombian government tries to negotiate peace deals with the country's remaining guerrilla forces, Vela says these groups are blackmailing candidates and intimidating voters in about one-third of Colombia's towns and cities. And in some cases, we see that these armed groups decide who, who, who they want to win. So they'll threaten people and kind of force them to vote for a certain candidate or to not vote for a candidate. Yeah, it's totally a big uh, problem for Colombia's democracy. Ya están mansitos. Colombian mayors cannot run for immediate re-election. So, before his term ends on January 1st, Molina is scrambling to build parks and renovate the soccer stadium. At night, he bunks down at a heavily guarded compound next to the police station. When he's not here, he tries to manage the town through phone calls and Zoom meetings. But some things slip through the cracks, says Daisy Diaz, a seamstress. She's still waiting for the mayor to pave the muddy street in front of her house. Molina had his own complaints during a meeting at the town hall with community leaders. He scolded them for spreading rumors that he was corrupt, gossip that led to even more death threats from the guerrillas. Rumors can be deadly, Molina said. People have been killed because someone insinuated that they were a crook or a spy. After two frenetic weeks, it's time for Molina to leave. So, to avoid getting kidnapped or ambushed on the road out of town, he calls the army, which sends in a helicopter. Molina climbs aboard, the chopper lifts off, and soon his hometown is just a speck on the horizon. For NPR News, I'm John Otis in Cartagena del Chaira, Colombia.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Friday afternoon. Stocks fell today. The Dow lost three-tenths of a percent. S&P lost two-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq dipped about one-tenth of a percent. For the S&P and Nasdaq, it was their worst week since March. The expanded United Auto Workers strike is affecting a distribution center in Massachusetts. The Stellantis warehouse in Mansfield is among the 38 facilities in 20 states that are joining the job action today. The Parts Distribution Center in Mansfield has 60 employees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. Coming up on WBUR in about 15 minutes, the U.S. Special Envoy for Yemen talks about his recent efforts to rally international support for the war-ravaged country. That story and much more is still ahead. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with Assassins. Stephen Sondheim's musical masterpiece looks inside the shattered minds of presidential assassins. Through October 15th, lyricstage.com. And Fresh City Kitchen, now accepting orders and helping you plan for your holiday catering needs. Learn more at freshcitykitchen.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Listen to WBUR anywhere you venture. Download or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. Another nice day today, but say a fond farewell to the glorious weather of this week as clouds move in tonight. Showers arrive tomorrow afternoon, propelled by a gusty wind. Could have some leftover showers Sunday, only in the low to mid-60s over the weekend. 65 degrees in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. In the Rose Garden today, President Biden stood in front of a group of activists and pledged to do more to stop gun violence. He says the politics of the issue have shifted. Folks, there comes a point where our voices are so loud, our determination is so clear that our effort can no longer be stopped. Biden is starting an office within the White House that will be dedicated to finding new ways to prevent gun violence. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid was at that event and joins us now. Hey there. Hi, good to talk to you. You too. So President Biden has been talking about gun violence prevention for so much of his career. Why is he starting this office now? Well, you know, Juana, he has sort of reached the end of the road in terms of what he can do legislatively. You know, you've heard him call quite a bit recently for an assault weapons ban, but that is extremely unlikely to happen. And given the current makeup of Congress, I would say any more action on guns seems fairly far-fetched. And gun control activists, I will say particularly young voters, have been asking for an office like this in the White House for years. So I will say what we're seeing from Biden today is a response to the private and public pleas that they've been making. Uh, 
that all being said, I think it's also hard to ignore the electoral politics as Biden heads into a re-election campaign. I spoke to David Hogg about this all earlier this week. He was one of the co-founders of the March for Lives movement that sprung up after the mass shooting at his high school in Parkland, Florida, a few years ago. And he pointed out that this is important for Biden in 2024. He needs young voters to win again. He especially needs younger voters of color that were critical to his election uh, in 2020. And, you know, at the event this afternoon at the White House, there were rows and rows of young people, uh, activists who've been advocating on this issue. And Juana, to me, that was noteworthy because you don't see a lot of events at the White House uh, full of people in their 20s. You know, Biden was introduced by Congressman Maxwell Frost. He's the first Gen Z member of Congress who said he was motivated to get into politics because of his concerns about gun violence. I mean, Asma, it was not that long ago that the powerful gun lobby would have tried to marshal support against something like this. So tell us, how much of the politics of the gun conversation changed? Uh, I mean, public opinion certainly does seem to be on the president's side, even if Congress is not. Uh, A recent NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll found that more Americans say it's important to curb gun violence than protect gun rights. Uh, You know, I recall doing some reporting after the 2018 midterms on how gun control was suddenly no longer this third rail in politics. Uh, That midterm election cycle in 2018 was the first time you saw gun control groups spend more money than gun rights groups like the NRA. Uh, It's been, I would say, quite a paradigm shift over the last few years. Okay, and about this new office, what exactly is it going to do? Well, it is fundamentally about elevating the issue and providing dedicated staff to the effort. Uh, Vice President Harris will oversee it. Um, The White House says that the office will help implement already existing gun law and dig deep to see if there's any additional executive actions that the president can take. Uh, It'll also coordinate more support for survivors. Uh, The White House compared this streamlining and coordination of effort to the way that FEMA responds to natural disasters, though, Juana, I will say, of course, gun violence is not a natural disaster. NPR's Asma Khalid reporting from the White House. Thank you. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. Hundreds of people will line up on Sunday morning to run the 45th annual Clarence DeMar Marathon in Keene, New Hampshire. The race is named after one of the best distance runners of the early 20th century who made a surprising contribution to sports science after his death. New Hampshire Public Radio's Paul Kuno Booth has the story. Clarence DeMar would train by running to and from his job at a print shop in Boston up to 14 miles a day, often carrying a clean shirt. It paid off. He won the 1911 Boston Marathon and competed in the next year's Olympics. But all that running raised eyebrows. A doctor warned him to quit the sport. Even his fellow runners told him not to try more than one or two marathons in his lifetime. He trained more than was commonly believed humanly possible at the time. Tom Derdarian is a historian of the Boston Marathon. He ran lots of mileage, and the idea in the past was that lots of mileage would wear you out, that you would die early. It may sound strange today, but back then, people thought marathons were kind of dangerous. People came out to watch the marathon because they thought that somebody might drop dead during it. Damar proved them all wrong. Here they come, 184 of them. It's the start of the Boston Marathon. He competed in two more Olympics and won the Boston Marathon a record seven times between 1911 and 1930. The press called him Mr. Demarathon. Here he is. Doesn't even look as if he's warmed up yet. 
After DeMar died from cancer at age 70, a couple cardiologists took a look at his heart. What they found contradicted all those dire warnings. Not only was his heart perfectly healthy, his arteries were two to three times the size of a typical person's. Dr. Paul D. Thompson is the former chief of cardiology at Hartford Hospital in Connecticut. So that even though they had all this cholesterol, they were not narrowing, they were not obstructing, they did not block flow. The study was published in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine. It made the front page of the Boston Globe. Dr. Aaron Bagish is a professor at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland and the former medical director of the Boston Marathon. It was one of those first studies that taught us that the human body can really handle very healthfully lots and lots of exercise. Running's popularity exploded in the decades after DeMar's death. Meanwhile, a growing body of research showed that exercise actually makes us healthier and helps us live longer. Or as Dr. Jonathan Kim, a sports cardiologist at Emory University, likes to put it, Exercise is truly medicine. But in recent decades, researchers have also learned more about a question that faced DeMar a century ago whether running as much as he did might have side effects. For example, atrial fibrillation, a type of irregular heartbeat, affects some middle-aged athletes, particularly men. I mean, I've had atrial fibrillation. One of the reasons I got interested in the whole topic. This is Thompson, the Hartford cardiologist. He's also an accomplished marathoner who ran in the 1972 Olympic trials. Don't want to discourage anyone. It's just that the extreme amounts of exercise done by you know, people like myself who have tried to be a competitive athlete all their lives has potential side effects. Studies have also found evidence of plaque buildup in the arteries of some lifelong endurance athletes. But Kim says it's not yet clear if that means anything for their long-term health. And in general, people with a high degree of cardiorespiratory fitness from years and years of intense exercise still typically live longer than everybody else. Overall, when you look at elite level athletes, they still tend to do better than individuals who are not as active or fit. For most of us, of course, the concern isn't getting too much exercise, it's getting too little. Research suggests even moving around a bit can make a difference, and more is generally better. In any case, many runners say they're not just doing it to stay healthy. It makes me, it makes me feel alive. Thomas Paquette is the manager at Ted's Shoe and Sport. It's a running store in Keene, New Hampshire. If I don't run, I'm not the same person. Clarence DeMar lived here in Keene for part of his racing career, and he's still a local legend. The running store's animatronic mannequin is even nicknamed Clarence. Paquette says it's not just DeMar's competitive achievements that inspire him. It's also that the man simply loved running. I see my parents. My dad just turned 80 yesterday, and my mom is 70, and they still are running too. He hopes to follow in their footsteps, and in Clarence DeMar's. For NPR News, I'm Paul Kuno Booth. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us today. It'll be Chris Sale against the White Sox Tukey Tucson tonight at Fenway Park from the start of the for the start of a three-game series. Sox will honor pitcher Tanner Houck before the game tonight. Houck is the Red Sox nominee for the 2023 Roberto Clemente Award, recognizing the player who best represents the game of baseball through extraordinary character and through community involvement. 
September equinox comes overnight tonight, about 50 minutes after midnight. That means tomorrow is the first day of autumn. The length of daylight is changing faster now than at any other time in the calendar year. This is 90.9 WBUR, 67 degrees at 530. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Thursdays at Harvard with The Brain in Your Senses at the Museums of Science and Culture, September 28th at 5, hmsc.harvard.edu. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. Kylie Minogue's new album, Sparkle, Shimmies, and Shines Light on that pop star underneath the disco ball. We all have our struggles, and I had to get through those lows and really believe in myself even when I wasn't sure. Just find that resilience and keep going. Tension and all the latest news, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Start your weekend here tomorrow. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The United Auto Workers strike has now expanded to include dozens of GM and Stellantis parts and distribution centers, including facilities in the South. But as Stephen Basaha reports, some non-union workers also stand to benefit from a UAW victory. Most auto workers in the South are not part of a union. But a pay raise for UAW members will likely mean a bump for them, too. That's because the foreign automakers in the South try to stay at least somewhat competitive in wages to keep workers from thinking about unionizing. Morris Mock works at a Nissan plant in Mississippi, and he's watching the strike closely. Workers feel that they're going to get the same thing that the UAW is going to get. But the north-south tug-of-war over wages goes both ways. The big three automakers say it's tough to raise wages while competing with the foreign automakers who pay less. On Friday, eight unionized distribution centers in the south joined the strike. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Basaha in Birmingham. Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey has been indicted by federal prosecutors today, accused of using his foreign affairs influence to help a halal meat company in New Jersey control exports to Egypt in return for bribes. That indictment names the powerful Democrat, his wife, and real estate developer Fred Davies, whose fingerprints were tied to alleged bribe money recovered from the senator's home. Here's U.S. Attorney Damian Williams. Special agents with the FBI executed search warrants on the residents and safe deposit box of Senator Menendez and Nadine Menendez in New Jersey. When they got there, they discovered approximately $500,000 of cash stuffed into envelopes and closets. Some of the cash was stuffed in the senator's jacket pockets. Some of the cash, some of the envelopes of cash, contained Davies' fingerprints or Davies' DNA. Menendez denies the charges. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA's chief, Phil Eng, has announced some top-level staffing changes today. They include new chief operating and safety officers and new director roles for water, rail, and bus service. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has more on the restructuring. It's no secret that the T has had a few rough years. Along with safety and reliability issues, the system has also been battling staffing shortages. The executive director of the MBTA Advisory Board, Brian Kane, says the restructuring should create greater stability at the T. This is a real positive development. It's probably the biggest structural change internal to the T in about a decade. Kane says the move shows Ang's commitment to fixing the troubled transit system. 
he's setting the table to be here for a long period of time. And that's heartening. Many of the changes were effective immediately. The T did not say when the new directors of water, rail, and bus will be named. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Some Massachusetts residents and business owners can now apply for federal assistance to cover losses from the flooding last month. Today, Governor Maura Healey said affected residents, businesses, and nonprofits in Essex, Middlesex, and Suffolk counties are eligible for low-interest loans from the U.S. Small Business Administration. The August 8th storms disrupted travel, sparked a tornado in Mattapoisett, and damaged several buildings in North Andover. Massport has reached a deal to build uh, the first mixed-income residential development project in the South Boston waterfront. 200 income-restricted housing units will be built on D Street. Monthly rents will range from $950 to more than $3,000, depending on household income and size. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. And Cambridge Science Festival, September 25th through October 1st. Discover cutting-edge technology, celebrate innovation, witness the future of fashion, and more. A chilly night tonight, about 55 degrees, a soggy and gray day tomorrow on the way. Clouds, a strong wind, a lot of rain, mainly in the afternoon. Sunday clouds stick around. Some of the rain could return with high temperatures in the low 60s tomorrow, just a few degrees higher on Sunday. 65 degrees in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Two out of every three people. That is the scale of need for humanitarian assistance in Yemen. That's according to the UN, which is mounting an emergency response to try to help millions of people there who are starving. War in Yemen has dragged on for nearly a decade since Houthi rebels overthrew the Saudi-backed government back in 2014. Iran then backed the rebels, and a civil war became a proxy war. But we may be at a moment for hope. I want to bring in the U.S. Special Envoy for Yemen, Tim Linderking, who's been holding meetings, on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly this week to try to build momentum for peace in Yemen. We have caught him at the U.N. today. Special Envoy Linderking. King, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks very much. Delighted to be here. Start with the stakes. I know you were in Yemen last month. When I give that figure that the UN says two out of three people in that country need help, can you just paint a picture of what that actually looks like? Yes, I, I think we're extremely concerned and very focused on the humanitarian situation in Yemen. It is routinely described as the world's worst humanitarian situation. And I think if you look at it for most of the metrics, Um, food insecurity, damaged infrastructure, uh, internal displacement, you really have very strong indicators that the war has taken a huge toll on the civilian population. 
But uh, as you said in the intro, I do think this is a hopeful moment, right? There's been 18 months now of de-escalation, no cross-border attacks. Uh, there's been an ability of Yemenis to move around uh, the country in a way that they hadn't been able to. Well, commercial talk- airport. Yeah, commercial flights taking off from the airport in Sana'a, the capital. That's It's been years since that's happened. That's right. First commercial flights since 2016, and they're about six a week. This is a moment of hope, but I think um, here on the American side, we feel very strongly that much more needs to be done to actually get to a durable ceasefire and a negotiation for peace. Yeah. Okay, well, let's get into the the talks and negotiations. I know that peace talks are happening in Saudi Arabia right now. Are they headed in the right direction? And what, what leverage does the U.S. have to try to push towards something more lasting, a, a durable peace? We do think they're headed in the right direction. And the fact that a Houthi delegation from Sana'a traveled to Saudi Arabia in itself is a significant development. This is the third round of of talks that has taken place. The Saudis have traveled to Yemen for talks, and now the Houthis are traveling to Riyadh. And it's quite significant. They were received by the uh, Minister of Defense. There have been quiet talks over the years, but this is public, and the stakes are incredibly high at this particular time. Yeah. It's interesting listening to you because you do sound hopeful, and it's just so rare to be able to say that word, hopeful and Yemen, in the same sentence. I do want to press, though, the, the underlying factors, you know, the reasons this country has been at war for nearly a decade. Are they resolved? Have they gone away? We can't say so. No, you're right to point that out. I mean, there are economic factors and competition for resources and governance issues that Yemenis are going to have to confront. And that's exactly why we're using this hopeful moment, I think, to drive to a Yemeni-Yemeni dialogue is to get the Yemenis together. Uh, those the conflict parties who have been fighting each other, those who support the government, those who support the Houthis, to get them negotiating together to solve the problems that confront them. And I think the fact that Secretary Blinken had no less than three meetings on Yemen while he was here this week, that kind of engagement from the U.S. leadership, I think, is really helping drive us toward, uh, with help from the region, toward these talks that we all want to see. Before I let you go, I wonder if you would speak directly to Americans listening, many of whom may never have been to Yemen or will never go to Yemen. Obviously, the plight of millions of Yemeni people starving should concern all of us as human beings. But as Americans, lay out what the national security interest is for us in resolving this conflict. I think there is a national security stake. I mean, one element, of course, that has plagued Yemen in the past has been the existence of al-Qaeda. They are still there. There was an attack on the USS Cole, which many of your listeners will remember. Back before 9-11, sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Yemen occupies a strategic location at the southwestern corner of the Arabian Peninsula and the opening there of the Red Sea until just a few weeks ago, there was a major environmental threat in the form of the Safar oil tanker, which had 1.1 million barrels of oil as a decaying ship. Mm -hmm. Through a UN-led, strongly U.S.-supported effort, that oil was offloaded safely. It was a major technical operation. And it's just another area where I think uh, the international community has moved together with the conflict parties in Yemen to remove a threat and preserve, um, you know, shipping and livelihoods in this vital international waterway. 
That is U.S. Special Envoy for Yemen, Tim Linderking, on the line from New York. Thank you. Thank you very much. Last weekend, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton was acquitted of 16 impeachment charges against him. The 10-day trial took place in the Texas Senate, and the Texas newsroom's Sergio Martinez Beltran watched every minute of it from the Statehouse Gallery. And he soon noticed someone else in the gallery with perfect attendance, who stuck out among the gaggle of hardened political reporters. Here's Sergio. Listen, the impeachment trial was interesting for us professional political nerds, but at times it could also be tedious with complicated procedural moves and legal slang. A motion is considered granted if it receives yay votes. So when I saw this teenage boy there every day, paying close attention, taking notes, I had to ask, why? Uh, Partly for school, partly because my dad is a lawyer on the defense council, partly because it's Texas history and... You know, you want to be part of that. And partly because Vincent Messira, teenage journalist, was reporting on the trial for his own newspaper. It's called the Grand Enclave Bugle. Not a lot of people know about it and doesn't have an official website. He's old school, print only, written on a typewriter. It's just a fun thing I do. I was reading a book about a kid who started his own newspaper. So I decided to start a little newspaper for my neighborhood. And in case you missed it, he's got a pretty big conflict of interest. His dad is Joseph Messira, a lawyer for Attorney General Ken Paxton. But Vincent is 13, so we'll let it slide. He hasn't been to J school yet, and his 20 subscribers probably won't mind. It's some old ladies, some friends of mine, some friends of my parents, a couple of my relatives. And he uses a distributor to deliver the paper. How old is your distributor? I believe he's 12. The headline on the latest issue of the Grand Enclave Fugle reads, Texas history, the trial of the century. And here's the lead, quote, These past few weeks have been crazy at the Texas Capitol. He goes on to give a recap of the trial, describing it as, quote, bumpy from the first witness through last. The paper includes a weather section, a movie review, even a political cartoon featuring a Ukrainian getting smashed by a Russian hammer. Right now, Mr. is not making any money off the endeavor, but that could change in the future. If I end up getting more people, it might be like one nickel. A newspaper that costs a nickel in this economy sounds like a good deal. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez Beltran in Austin. And you are listening to All Things Considered. In the mid-20th century, the interstate highway system brought mobility and prosperity to many Americans. Constructing those roads through major cities, though, decimated thriving black neighborhoods across the country. Today, in St. Paul, Minnesota, there is a new effort underway aimed at reversing generations of economic damage. Matt Sepik of Minnesota Public Radio reports. Anthony Bradford opens the front door to his modest two-story brick house and welcomes a group of visitors inside for a tour. But first, he introduces his new kitten. I have my cat. His name is Hermes. He's three months old. Is this a lot for you? Oh, you're purring, so I'm guessing you're fine. Bradford, a software engineer who also works a couple of side gigs, closed on the house this summer. The 22-year-old says he was homeless three times growing up and never thought he'd be a homeowner at such a young age. This is the world to me. 
Built in the 1890s, Bradford's house sits on a quiet residential street seven blocks from Interstate 94 near what remains of the old Rondo neighborhood. For decades, Rondo was the cultural and economic center of St. Paul's African-American community. Businesses thrived here along with social clubs and churches. But in 1956, bulldozers began cutting an eight-lane path through the neighborhood's heart. Most of the 700 Rondo residents forced out of the neighborhood received only a pittance for their property. A recent study estimates that collectively they lost $157 million in equity in today's dollars, wealth they would never pass on to their children. Bradford is the first Rondo descendant to buy a home with the help of a new program that city leaders call the Inheritance Fund. A $90,000 forgivable loan covered 40% of the purchase price, putting the house within his financial reach. Setting up this fund was a priority for Mayor Melvin Carter, who, like Bradford, has Rondo ancestry. My grandparents lost over a half a dozen commercial properties, and my father witnessed the St. Paul Fire Department burn down his parents' home as a training exercise after they were displaced from their family home. Before cutting a ribbon on Bradford's front porch, Carter said years of official apologies were never enough. We can't undo those historical wrongs. What we can do is to provide descendants of Old Rondo, uh, like Mr. Bradford, the opportunity to reclaim that lost value. While prospective inheritance fund buyers may purchase a home anywhere in the city, they must show proof that they're descended from a Rondo resident whom I-94 displaced. That encouraged Bradford to learn about his family history. He found that his great-great-grandfather, Dan Presley, moved to Minnesota after his business in the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, Oklahoma, known as Black Wall Street, was destroyed in the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Decades later, more displacement followed when freeway construction began. Asked what his ancestor might say now, Bradford speculates that Presley would have offered some practical advice. I know for a fact that he would want to review money with me and discipline with money because Presley's for years have always been disciplined people. We have businesses. We know how to take care of ourselves in our own. With only $2 million in city money available and a big response, the Inheritance Fund had to temporarily stop accepting new applications. Now, Mayor Carter says he's urging foundations and private donors to kick in cash so more people can reestablish their roots here and also build financial stability for themselves and future generations. For NPR News, I'm Matt Sepik in St. Paul. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us. Coming up in 15 minutes, the United Auto Workers strike expands, including to a distribution center in Massachusetts. The latest is coming up. Calling all runners. Join us at City Space a week from today for a jog around the neighborhood. Also meet leaders in the Boston running community at a post-run reception. Get free tickets at WBUR.org events. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Inspire a whole new generation of learners with an education degree from Leslie University. Get started today at leslie.edu. And the Umbrella Arts Center presenting Lizzie. Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this ghost story meets rock concert musical. Now through November 5th. More at theumbrellaarts.org. 
It's the last home game of the regular season for the Red Sox as they play the White Sox at Fenway Park tonight. Game time 7-10. Boston has lost eight of its last 10 games. Today could be it for the dry weather for a while. Tonight should turn cloudy and cool. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Clouds to start the day tomorrow. A good chance of rain, especially tomorrow afternoon. Chilly, barely in the 60s. Some of the rain could last into Sunday. Should be a cloudy, windy day, only a little bit milder. Highs in the mid-60s. WBUR supporters include Elliott Community Human Services, committed to serving the most vulnerable populations and transforming lives. ElliottCHS.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Josh Gombelman put the tough questions to Hillary Rodham Clinton and got answers. That's How often do you hang out with Pete Davidson? <laughs> you know, I, I am a big fan of Pete. On Peter Sagal, this week we'll talk to filmmaker John Wilson, creator of How To with John Wilson, and find out how much he hangs out with Pete Davidson. Join us for a maddeningly persistent news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The U.N. Security Council may soon approve an international intervention for Haiti as gangs solidify their control over the country. Kenya recently offered to lead an international force, and U.S. diplomats have been spending time at the U.N. this week encouraging others to pitch in. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Tony. Mr. President, so good to see you. Secretary of State Antony Blinken sits down with Kenya's president, William Ruto, to talk about Kenya's plans in Haiti. How the nitty-gritty so that we can be able to make a useful contribution. Kenya has offered about a 1,000 troops to help Haiti's national police combat gangs and provide security of key installations and roads. In his speech to the General Assembly this week, Ruto said much is at stake. Haiti is the ultimate test of international solidarity and collective action. The international community has failed this test so far. And the Kenyan leader says Haiti deserves better. The cry of our brothers and sisters, who are the first people to win their struggle for freedom from colonial tyranny, has reached our ears and touched our hearts. There are still a few steps to go before an international force can deploy to Haiti. The U.S. is drafting a Security Council resolution to endorse the mission and hoping for a vote next week. Secretary Blinken says most countries want that to be able to send troops. For its part, the U.S. is pitching in $100 million as well as logistical and intelligence support and medevac capabilities. With our support, this mission can deploy within months. And we really have no time to lose. Blinken met with Haiti's de facto leader, who's here for the U.N. General Assembly, as gangs back in the country led protests against Ariel Henry. The gangs control much of the capital, Port-au-Prince. But those chaotic scenes felt far from the ballroom in New York, where Secretary Blinken chaired a meeting with officials from more than 30 countries. The Assistant Secretary of State for the Western Hemisphere, Brian Nichols, says most of them want to contribute in some way. There were offers of uh, support from Asia, Africa, uh, Latin America, the Caribbean, 
mean, people were coming up to us today and yesterday saying, hey, we're in, we're going to support, we are going to provide troops, we're going to provide police, um, we're going to provide money. But Nichols says the Kenyans haven't come up with a full list of what they need, nor do they have clear rules of engagement yet for this, the latest foreign intervention in Haiti. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, New York. If you've ever bought a dress from the women's section of a store, you might recognize this reaction. <gasps> Perfect. <laughs> I know, it's my dream. When you discover it has pockets, there's even social media hype around the unbridled joy of acquiring pocket-laden clothes. I like your dress. Thanks. It has pockets. This dress is called the fig, and the pockets are so big they can hold things like a bottle of bourbon, Unfortunately for most feminine clothes, there is a long history of horror behind that rare joy of discovering pockets. The horror of reaching for a safe place to put your awkwardly dangling hands and discovering your pockets are fake, sealed shut, or perhaps non-existent. Have you ever been locked out of, I don't know, the car or your house, and you do that patting yourself down gesture, and you're like, oh, do I have something useful? only to discover your purse with the keys in it. It's in the car because you don't have pockets. And it struck me that women's wear just so often falls down on the job. Why is that the case? And then I just started thinking, well, what kind of a thing is a pocket anyway? That's Hannah Carlson. She spent a long time pondering the very question of who gets to have pockets and why. Her new book is called Pockets, an intimate history of how we keep things close. I think lurking under this is this notion that menswear is meant for utility and women's wear for beauty. And that comes out in the decisions we make when we make our clothes. Gender characteristics, they're not realities. They're just sort of ideas. And to feel comfortable with those ideas, we need evidence of their truth. And that evidence comes out in material objects. If you go into any major mass market brand, why must girls' clothes always sparkle? You know, why are shorts so short? Why did a seven-year-old from Arkansas have to write the CEO of uh, Old Navy demanding real pockets and jeans? Dear Old Navy, I do not like that the front pockets of the girls' jeans are fake. I want front pockets because I want to put things in them. Would you consider making girls jeans with front pockets? Sincerely, Cameron Gardner, age seven. With these sorts of mass market offerings and teaching girls that they have to accept sort of difficulty and that their clothing is going to be inconvenient. It seems like Pockets are introduced in the 16th century, and the very first place they go is men's breeches. And breeches were these huge sort of pumpkin-like bloomer things. And the first pockets seem sort of like improvisational, like, oh, the tailor says, instead of sticking this bag around your waist, I'm gonna stitch it inside these big fat breeches. Through the early 20th century, boys wore dresses till about the age of three, and so it was called breeching leaving behind children's dress and beginning to wear trousers. There's this image from 1860 from Peterson's magazine, and it shows a young boy who's just gotten to have his first trousers. It shows the boy just having so much fun strutting around. His legs are spread apart. He's got his hands in his pockets. He's lording it over his puppy. And I think that notion that to be grown up 
means you get this new good stuff. You get to have pockets, you get to have command and control, a place to put everything in. And I think that's what you know is missing from tales of girlhood. Women's wear always had sort of alternate pockets. And so I don't think women were very bothered by the fact that men had these new pockets in their breeches. It didn't matter. And it doesn't really matter until the development of the suit and the development of women's modern fashion. So with the suit, there's just sort of this explosion of pockets. It rejects the ornament and frivolity of the 18th century aristocracy. It's associated with authority. What's every single politician gonna wear on a debate stage? A suit, it's serious, but it was also always practical. Through the 1920s, pockets came and went. They never had a settled place. And the first thing to go in women's fast fashion is pockets. But it remains the case that pockets are a part of doing business in menswear. And so I do think that we've been making huge strides in pocketing for women and considering that women do need utilitarian clothes to make it. But I kind of wonder if menswear will accept purses <laughs> in a way before we have pockets that are totally and utterly standard for women. That was Hannah Carlson talking about her new book, Pockets, an intimate history of how we keep things close. Hands in pockets, I'm going to tell you, you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Scribner, publisher of The Six by Lauren Grush, telling the story of America's first women astronauts. Six women, each making history going to orbit aboard NASA's space shuttle. Available in bookstores and online. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is WBUR. The September equinox comes just past midnight tonight. That means tomorrow is the first day of autumn, and it should be a gray day. Showers possibly in the afternoon tomorrow, pushed along by a gusty wind. Some leftover showers coming our way on Sunday. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Democratic Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey has been indicted today in Manhattan on federal bribery charges. Now the governor of New Jersey and other leaders there are calling on him to resign. Menendez denies the accusations. Today is Friday, September 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. 
Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the United Auto Workers said today it's launching strikes in 38 more GM Stellantis locations, specifically parts distribution centers. One of them is in Mansfield, Mass. And this weekend, NASA expects to collect dust and rock from its first ever sample return of an asteroid. But all has to go exactly right. We've already seen one of those where it didn't happen with the Genesis mission, where the capsule crashed because the parachute failed to deploy. It would be the largest recovery of extraterrestrial material since the Apollo mission. The time is 6.01. Live from NPR News in New York, I'm Jack Spear. Auto workers at General Motors and Stellantis are expanding their strike to more than 30 locations across 20 states. Member station KERA, Seth Bodine, reports workers are putting more pressure on the companies for new contracts. No bills, no bills, no bills, no bills, no bills. The strike includes more than 100 workers at this General Motors Parts Distribution Center in Texas. Sean Zapata has worked at the facility about 20 miles outside Fort Worth for 10 years. He said he hopes the negotiations result in higher wages because rising prices are catching up with him. And we were fine for a while, but we started losing overtime. And that combination with the economy right now, it's, we're struggling bad. So we were, for a minute there, we were living paycheck to paycheck, really struggling. The last GM worker strike was in 2019 and lasted 40 days. I'm Seth Bodine in Fort Worth. President Biden has confirmed he'll travel to Michigan Tuesday to show his support for striking auto workers and says he will join them on the picket line. New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez and his wife are facing three federal corruption charges. Prosecutors unsealed a 39-page indictment against the lawmaker, his wife, and three other co-defendants today. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz has been following the case. In the wake of this federal indictment, Menendez is temporarily stepping down from his post as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Prosecutors say he was part of a four-year-long scheme to enrich himself and three businessmen from New Jersey. The indictment says Menendez took actions that benefited the government of Egypt. And, allegedly, in return, Menendez and his wife received hundreds of thousands of dollars, a luxury car, and gold bars. The senator and his wife will make their first court appearance next week. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News. Trenching rain, gusty winds, and possible flooding all in the forecast for communities along the East Coast this weekend. NPR's Anna Isaacs reports more than 7 million people are under a tropical storm warning, and governors of North Carolina and Virginia have declared states of emergency. Tropical storm Ophelia has been brewing in the Atlantic and is expected to make landfall in North Carolina early Saturday before moving north toward the Chesapeake Bay. Forecasters are predicting up to seven inches of rain in some areas, warning of possibly life-threatening storm surge from coastal North Carolina to southeastern Virginia. The National Weather Service says rainfall will spread over the weekend into the mid-Atlantic and southern New England, with the potential for scattered flash floods. Meteorologists say record warm Atlantic waters are contributing to a busier-than-usual hurricane season, which won't wind down until the end of November. Anna Isaacs, NPR News. Stocks whipsawed around in the final trading session of the week before closing lower. The Dow was down 106 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Lemonster is suing UMass Memorial Healthcare to stop the closure of its maternity center. The city filed a suit today. UMass Memorial plans to close the birthing unit tomorrow. Some local residents want the facility to stay open for pregnant women who have limited resources to get care elsewhere. Lunenburg State Senator John Cronin fought the closure. 
And if you put Fitchburg and Lemonster and Lunenburg together, and you're talking about a service area the size of Lowell, this is a community that's geographically isolated, that really that that desperately needs essential health care services accessible and in our community. Governor Maura Healy is ordering a review of maternal health centers in the state. UMass Memorial Health says it cannot afford to keep the center open. It says it will provide 24-7 transportation for patients to UMass Medical Center in Worcester. The expanded United Auto Workers strike is affecting a facility in Massachusetts. The Stellantis Warehouse in Mansfield is among the 38 facilities in 20 states joining the job action. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren visited the picket line just after it went up this afternoon. When the CEOs have gotten 40% raises, it's time for the rank-and-file workers, the ones who really produce the product, to just get a fair contract and a share of those profits. The Parts Distribution Center in Mansfield has 60 employees. With 2,700 new confirmed coronavirus cases being reported, a top public health official in Massachusetts says more vaccines and treatments lessen the severity of the disease. Department of Public Health Infectious Disease Director Larry Madoff says the positive test rate is at 11 percent. It's at levels that we've seen during previous surges, and so it's not gone away. At the same time, we think that the severe complications have gone down relative to the number of cases. We're seeing less severe outcomes. This week, 29 deaths related to COVID are being reported. More than 350 people were hospitalized. Clouds move in overnight tonight. Should spend the weekend, the first official weekend of fall. Overnight should get down to about 55 degrees. Tomorrow around 62 for a high. Rainfall mostly tomorrow afternoon. Some strong winds around. Then Sunday, some of the rain should back off, but we may still have showers. Still windy. Highs in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. It's 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The United Auto Workers strike has just gotten a lot bigger, and it could soon be affecting a lot more people. That's because the union just expanded the action to warehouses in a way that will quickly ripple out to dealers. And in another big move, the union is also pitting the automakers against each other. NPR's Camila Dominoski joins us to explain. Camila, I understand that the UAW made a big announcement about all of this today, what they say. Yeah, so they are expanding the strikes against Stellantis, that's the parent company of Chrysler, and General Motors, but not against Ford. And the expansion is specifically to 38 parts distribution centers. What do we know about those facilities and how big of a deal is this? Yeah, so what we're talking about here are not the huge plants where they make vehicles, which is what went on strike last week and remains on strike. These are parts distribution centers, basically warehouses, where the companies ship out parts to dealerships. They're located all over the country because there are dealerships all over the country. This doesn't shut down the whole auto industry, right? Companies can still make cars. These are smaller facilities, but what they do is they feed parts to dealerships when they need to repair vehicles, right? So this will affect drivers who need repairs as soon as their local dealerships run through their local stockpiles. Okay, and what is the UAW's strategy with all of this? 
Yeah, well, one thing is to hit the automakers in their pocketbooks, right? These things, these warehouses that ship out parts, they are a cash cow for companies. Just today, I was listening back to a call that GM did with Credit Suisse a few years ago, and the then CFO of the company, Divya Suradivra, she said this. It is a very important part of our profitability, and it's been consistent. Consistent. That is, car sales go up, they go down, but there's always money in selling floor mats, <laughs> unless you can't ship them out of the warehouse, sure. obviously, right? Um, these warehouses are smaller, there's fewer employees, that's helpful, you know, the UAW is paying striking employees $500 each week, so this stretches out the strike fund, and it also affects dealers, and dealers might put pressure on companies. Earlier, I think I heard you say that they are not striking at more Ford locations. Why is that? Yeah, Ford is simply giving the union more of what it wants. Better cost of living guarantees, job protections if plants close, paying workers at different locations equally. There's still not a deal between the union and Ford. Ford says there are, in fact, significant gaps in between them. But the union is really playing Ford off of their rivals. The GM and Stellantis here saying, look, if you give us what we want, we don't put your centers on strike. Okay, so it's clear that the UAW is turning up the heat here and that this is a situation that consumers could soon feel acutely. Where did things go from here? Talks are continuing. Um, the companies are frustrated. GM used the word untenable to describe the demands. Stellantis accused the union of pursuing political agendas. All the companies say they wouldn't be able to compete with non-unionized companies if they met all the union's demands. On the other side of the table, the union says they could add more strikes at any time. Most of the carmakers' plants are still running today, right? This was a big announcement that the UAW announced today. But there's still, you know, the union's keeping some of its powder dry. And I should, you know, I should note, I, I try to avoid using military metaphors really casually. Um, but Sean Fain, who is the president of the UAW, he wore a camo shirt in today's video. So kind of invited that one there. I guess. NBR's Camila Dominoski, thank you much. Thanks, Juana. We turn now to news out of the Justice Department. U.S. Senator Robert Menendez and his wife have been indicted on federal corruption charges. The New Jersey Democrat is accused of accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes from three businessmen in exchange for using his power as a senator to help them. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas is with us now. Hey there. Hello. Tell us more about the charges. Well, the Menendez and his wife face three charges, uh, conspiracy to commit bribery, conspiracy to commit honest services fraud, uh, and conspiracy to commit extortion. Uh, three New Jersey businessmen who were allegedly bribing them, uh, bribing Menendez in exchange for his help were also charged. One of them is originally from Egypt, and that ties into some of the alleged criminal conduct here. Uh, and that's because, according to the indictment, Menendez allegedly gave sensitive U.S. government information and actually took concrete actions to secretly help the Egyptian government. Uh, that includes giving them non-public information about U.S. military aid to Egypt uh, and info about U.S. embassy staff in Cairo. Interesting, particularly given that Senator Menendez chairs the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, although I gather he is stepping down temporarily until this matter is resolved. R Ryan, what else is the government saying he did for these bribes? Well, prosecutors also say that Menendez pressured a U.S. Department of Agriculture official to try to protect uh, a lucrative business monopoly that one of the businessmen had set up. Uh, Menendez also allegedly tried to interfere in a state prosecution in New Jersey related to one co-defendant. 
And Prosecutor Sam Menendez used his position as senator uh, to try to influence a federal criminal prosecution, also in New Jersey, of yet another one of his co-defendants. Okay, so a lot of details as you have read over this. What what stands out to you, Ryan? Well, there's a lot of detail in this indictment, uh, and that certainly includes uh, the bribes that Menendez and his wife allegedly received. The indictment says that when federal agents searched Menendez's home uh, in June of 2022, they found $480,000 in cash. Some of it stuffed into envelopes. Some of those envelopes, prosecutors say, had the fingerprints of one of Menendez's co-defendants on them. Uh, some of the cash was hidden in clothes. There's a photo actually in the indictment of two jackets with Menendez's name monogrammed on them uh, and stacks of $100 bills that were allegedly hidden in those coats. Um, and agents also found bars of gold. There's a picture of them in the indictment, which also says that Menendez's internet search history includes a search for, quote, how much is one kilo of gold worth? Okay. Um, this is not the first time that Senator Menendez has faced federal corruption charges. He fought earlier charges. He won. What is he saying this time? Well, you're right. He was indicted in New Jersey back in 2014 on unrelated bribery charges. Menendez took that case to trial, ended up getting a hung jury, and those charges were ultimately dropped. Uh, so yes, he fought those charges that time. He's doing it Again, this time he put out a statement today in which he accuses prosecutors of misrepresenting what Menendez calls the normal work of a congressional office. He accused prosecutors of uh, attacking his wife. He says these are baseless allegations. The facts are not as prosecutors are presenting them. Um, he said that's the same thing that happened the last time he was prosecuted. And he said, look how that ended. He wasn't convicted. And so he told people to remember that. NPR Justice Correspondent Ryan Lucas, thank you. Thank you. On Sunday morning, if all goes as planned, a capsule will come screaming down from space and land in Utah's Great Salt Lake Desert. Inside will be some unusual cargo, dust and rock from an asteroid. NASA is bringing back about eight ounces of asteroid material. That's about a cupful, which may not sound like much, but this will be the biggest return of extraterrestrial samples since the Apollo astronauts collected moon rocks. As NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports, the mission's chief scientist has been dreaming of this day, literally. The asteroid is called Bennu. It's a dark rubble pile about the size of the Empire State Building, and it frequently appears in the dreams of Dante Loretta. He's a planetary scientist at the University of Arizona and the leader of NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission. He says he tends to have vivid dreams, and when the spacecraft was orbiting the asteroid about 200 million miles away, he dreamed he was out there too. One of my favorite ones was um, I was in the gift shop on the asteroid, and I was like, how did I get this job? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not supposed to be selling Benny's memorabilia. Then I was like, if we can build a gift shop, why am I stressing so much about getting all this sample? I could just pick some up right now. Picking up a sample of the asteroid wasn't that easy. Instead of having a smooth surface, as scientists expected, Bennu was studded with boulders. So the team had to get the spacecraft, which is the size of a 15-passenger van, down into a rocky crater. In October of 2020, the spacecraft maneuvered past obstacles with nicknames like Mount Doom. O'Rex has descended below the five-meter mark. The hazard map is go for tag. While mission managers sat in a control room, nervously watching computer screens. And we have touchdown! <laughs> Osiris Rex tagged the asteroid with a robotic arm. 
The rocks it collected got sealed inside a sample return capsule that looks like a mini UFO. As the spacecraft flies by Earth Sunday morning, it will jettison the capsule, which will enter the atmosphere going 36 times the speed of sound. Its target zone is in the high mountain desert of the Utah Test and Training Range. Loretta says everything depends on its parachutes working. We've already seen one of those where it didn't happen, right, with the Genesis mission, where the capsule crashed because the parachute failed to deploy. A disaster like that one would be a nightmare for Loretta and the other scientists because a crash could contaminate the asteroid materials. And getting to study a pristine sample was the whole point of this mission. Asteroids are thought to be leftovers from planet formation in the early solar system. Researchers want to study their undisturbed chemical makeup to learn what ingredients could have helped lead to the emergence of life. So, assuming the OSIRIS-REx capsule lands safely, it will get rushed to a clean room and then onto a special lab where it will be opened. Loretta recently dreamed about that moment. In the dream, the just-opened canister was on a table in front of him. And there was a green gem sitting in there amongst the black dirt, and I grabbed it and I popped it in my mouth. <laughs> I was like, why would you do that? <laughs> he says in real life, the capsule will be in a sealed cabinet. There's no way he could grab the asteroid stuff. Plus, he'd never eat it. He says he and his colleagues have worked too hard for almost two decades to get it. Nell Greenfield Boyce, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR's All Things Considered. Stocks fell today. The Dow lost three-tenths of a percent. S&P lost two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq dipped about one-tenth of a percent. For the S&P and Nasdaq, it was their worst week since March. The time is 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Historic New England, inviting you to spend time with New England's storytellers this fall tour their 38 historic house museums, visit their gardens and landscapes, and enjoy fun and informative programs and events. Learn more at historicnewengland.org. Fluffernutter fans, be patient. Organizers of the Somerville Fluff Festival says the annual event is being moved from tomorrow to Sunday because of the expected rain tomorrow. The festival's Jessica Eshelman says that there will be public transportation despite the construction going on along the Green Line extension. The MBTA is providing free shuttles, fully accessible, running every 10 minutes from the East Somerville stop on the Green Line directly to Union Square from 2.30 to 7.30 on Sunday. The festival celebrates the marshmallow spread invented in Somerville in 1917. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities by partnering with customers to help those in need. More information at OceanStateJobLot.com. Clouds are moving in tonight. Should be another chilly night, about 55 degrees. Tomorrow, clouds to start. We should indeed have rain moving in by the afternoon. Could have a gusty wind behind it, a raw day, only about 62 then showers may come back on Sunday. It'll still be windy, reaching the mid-60s at the highest. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Comcast Business, 
providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. The Huntington Theater, kicking off their thrilling new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic. Now through October 8th, tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. And Bridgewater State University, hosting Nobel Peace Prize laureate Lech Walesa on campus October 3rd. BridgeW.edu slash events. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The U.S. Soccer Federation recently announced that it's leaving its national headquarters in Chicago. The organization will move its staff and build the first ever training center for all U.S. soccer national teams in Atlanta. The decision to relocate to the southeast comes as no surprise to those watching the sports rise in the region. Orlando Montoya of Georgia Public Broadcasting reports. To give you a sense of how quickly soccer has grown in the Southeast, a decade ago there were no Major League Soccer teams south of Washington, D.C. Now there are five. And the league's vice president for communications, Dan Cordemanch, says their fans are transforming the sport. The cultural influence for the sport of soccer in our country has certainly shifted south. And that's due in large part to the success of Atlanta United, Charlotte FC, Nashville SC, and even further south with Orlando City and Inter-Miami. Four of the league's five largest match attendance records were set in either Atlanta or Charlotte in the past five years. Felipe Cardenas writes about soccer for the athletic. He says the region and the sport are both attracting similar types of people. Demographically, this region is changing dramatically, and it's it's become an international region, and and it's the new America, meaning a younger generation, a more diverse generation, uh, a more open-minded generation. Soccer in the Southeast also got a huge boost this year when one of those young internationals decided to play for Inter-Miami. The arrival of one of the greatest soccer players of all time has excited superfans like Matt Swift of Mint City Collective, a Charlotte FC supporters group, the kind that waves large flags, belts out chants, and sets off smoke bombs during matches. Messi's here in the South. He's in the Eastern Conference. I just think with, with him specifically coming to the league, it's going to open up a lot more doors, a lot more eyeballs on this league, and it's going to change a lot of things. And again, I, it's no coincidence that they've moved the headquarters to Atlanta. Like any other business decision, U.S. soccer's move to Atlanta also could have to do with weather, airport connections, and, of course, money. The owner of Atlanta United and the NFL's Atlanta Falcons, Arthur Blank, pledged $50 million toward the move. For NPR News, I'm Orlando Montoya in Atlanta. Back in 1985, Argentina became the only democratic government in modern history to convict the leaders of a former dictatorship in its own civilian court. Today, at Film Forum in New York, long-suppressed video recordings of that trial make their American premiere. NPR's Bob Mandela was recently in Argentina and brought back the story behind the documentary El Juicio, The Trial. A word of warning, his story contains details of violence, brutality, and sexual assault. 
Standing beneath the birch and flowering jacaranda trees at what used to be ESMA, E-S-M-A, the acronym in Spanish for the Navy School of Mechanics, it's not easy to picture the horrors that took place here. In the 1970s and 80s, ESMA was a secret detention center for a right-wing military regime brutally engaged in eliminating dissent. The gruesome nature of its time as one of many torture and execution sites was exposed in trial testimony two years after the end of the dictatorship. The documentary El Juicio is composed entirely of video shot during those courtroom proceedings. 530 hours were filmed by Argentina's public television. Because the military was still feared, a copy of the recordings was secretly stashed half a world away in Oslo, where the tape sat in Norwegian government vaults for more than two decades. They have never been publicly broadcast, not even during the trial. News programs could show three minutes of courtroom images back then, but without sound, says Veronica Torres, executive director of the Human Rights Consortium now entrusted with the videos. Her organization, Memoria Abierta, Open Memory, is charged with making the trial videos available to the public. As part of that mission, the group co-produced the documentary El Juicio. I'm speaking with Director Torres in Memoria Abierta's offices at the former ESMA. What is now a museum of memory, she says, was then a site of state terrorism where civilians were held without charges, tortured, then flown far out over the Atlantic to be thrown alive from what were known as death flights. It's disconcerting to realize how close victims at ESMA were to the society they'd been snatched from. Just across a busy highway are shops and apartment buildings. Still, the film has witnesses detailing all sorts of atrocities. Teenagers swept up on what was called the Night of the Pencils for serving on high school student councils. Claudia Maria Falcone. 16-year-olds facing unspeakable violence, torture, rape, murder, remembers a lone survivor. Because of a face-obscuring over-the-shoulder camera angle required by the court, you know he's crying only from the shaking of his torso. Another witness speaks of expectant mothers imprisoned until they gave birth, then executed, their babies handed off to military families. Because their captivity was never acknowledged by the regime, the victims were known as the disappeared. And as the editor of the English-language Buenos Aires Herald told the judges... As soon as somebody disappeared, everybody said, he, she, must be a terrorist. I had continual meetings with the Minister of Interior. He always complained that publications in the newspaper were counterproductive. So instead of stopping the killing, they tried to stop people reporting the killing. While these videos haven't been seen by the Argentine public, the film's damning testimony is a matter of public record. Newspapers offered transcripts of the trial in 1985, not as visceral, perhaps, as hearing the voices of victims, but Torres, translated here by her colleague Alejandra Pavisic, remembers the effect that coverage had on her family when she was a child. I remember that I used to read the newspaper together with my grandmother at that moment and that her grandmother was just now realizing what what happened during dictatorship thanks to what she read in the newspapers about the trial tens of thousands of people disappeared how is it possible that people didn't know what was happening mm. um. 
The reason this is tough to answer has to do with what Torres hopes releasing the tapes will rectify. People in big cities, she says, saw the military in action, knew about the disappearances and detention camps. But in rural areas and the South, where her grandmother lived, the repression was more hidden. And 40 years later, its savagery is becoming a distant memory, especially for a generation that wasn't alive at the time, a generation that can, in the trial tapes, hear the prosecutor conclude his summation with nunca más, never again, and watch the crowd's explosive reaction wipe the smiles from the faces of the former dictator and his generals. Memoria Abierta hopes to keep that memory potent through broad access to the trial videos. I'm Bob Mandela. The campus, now known as Ex-ESMA, was just named a World Heritage Site by the United Nations on Tuesday. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Fashion is one of the most environmentally damaging industries. Fast fashion is especially dangerous. But a new crop of designers is emerging. They use progressive production methods and natural fibers to create long-lasting clothes. Coming to City Space Monday, October 2nd, how sustainable fashion can help save the planet. Go to WBUR.org slash events for tickets. It's the last home series of the regular season for the Red Sox tonight as they play the Chicago White Sox at Fenway Park. Game time is 7-10. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations.